0: Hi, Acacia Croft. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it me. so much. And uh, to introduce our relationship, to make sure everyone understands all the proper bias, you are one of my wife's best friends ever. You guys attended University of Texas at Austin and uh, have been best friends ever since. And uh, we met when Debbie and I fell in love and I picked you up at the airport <laughs> in full Joey regalia. And uh, I think you mentioned something to the effect of, oh, my God, Debbie has found her newest project.
1: Final project.
0: Final project. There you go. There you go.
1: So, yes. Thank you, Joey. Uh, Yeah. um, Debbie's a wonderful person. So anybody, anybody of you that know Joey, you know that Debbie has to be a wonderful person.
0: She pretty is. She's amazing. Um, Let me do this. I need to introduce you and kind of why you're here and what we're doing today. So you are a veteran educator and you have 15 years in both public and private education you taught at the american international schools overseas in nigeria and uh that was after graduating from texas you went to the peace corps of course you did and you were a volunteer in honduras and you extended as a service as the peace corps volunteer coordinator i don't even know how to pronounce that word where is that tega hey, you you. thank you <laughs> working closely with the secretary of education Uh, Upon returning from the Peace Corps, you embarked upon a career in L-O-T-E middle school teacher in Title I schools. You served as teachers for many years. You taught in Nigeria for six years, where you began your master's in counseling. And uh, during 2014 Ebola epidemic, you were among the core group of expat teachers to transition the school to a virtual platform. Returning stateside in 2017, you returned to the classroom at the high school level, and was then recruited to lead the census outreach and partnerships for K through 12 organizations in the greater Houston area. So you have an amazing amount of experience in education and community. And I think a reason that we're here together is that I shot an episode with an amazing young man named Dax Devlin Ross. And he is a author, black author, DEI consultant, attorney, And I wanted to talk about critical race theory. I wanted to understand why it was so predominant in the zeitgeist. And an example at the time, and these numbers have probably gotten bigger, but at the time of my filming with Dax, Fox News had brought up critical race theory 1,300 times in a 90-day period. And so I wanted to figure out, like, why is this so popular? And what is critical race theory? What does it mean? Why is it so important in our culture? And in that pursuit, I sent you the two and a half hours of our unedited video, because I wanted to make sure I wasn't offending the black population. And uh, you had a lot to say, and that's kind of why we decided to jump on this camera together and talk specifically about, not only critical race theory, but uh, white solidarity, the black-white divide, as a culture, why we're still here, why we're still fighting over things like teaching critical race theory. And so I wanna be somewhat loose in this, but I have framed it around you and I reading some of the same books. So you actually did read Dax's book, which was, in t- it was titled Letters to My White Male Friends. And part of which was his go- his goal was in part to share with the world his story through prose. It was a beautiful book. And it talked about his upbringing specifically. And it's actually somewhat analogous to yours, where he had educated parents that focused on his education. He went to Sidwell in DC, which was one of the best schools in the country. And similar to you and your upbringing, where your folks were educated and they also put you in good schools to make sure that you were, you know, had the best chance possible, obviously, to navigate this thing we call life. So why don't we talk a little bit about that specific? Why don't we start with? After okay. I sent you the video, <laughs> and you said, Joey, I have some comments, and then we started talking, and I actually did remove certain pieces, so why don't you kind of tell me your first take on that, and, and, and the disconnect you saw between Dax and I, uh, culturally.
1: Well, let's start just before. Let's start with your book.
0: Okay. Because you can do the first that too.
1: book you asked me to read was your oh, book. Oh,
0: that's right. That's right. <laughs> You're right. My <laughs> memoir. Yeah, it's and the prologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you going to tell him the name of it? Yeah. The, the book is called Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag.
1: I, I just couldn't say it like he could. Yeah, no, that's I fair. Say it. Um, so let's start there. Um, when you were on your journey to write your memoir,
2: yeah,
1: you sent me the first copy. and that's right. Said, sure, Joey, I'll read it. Sure, Joey, I'll read it. And so one day I sat down to read it. And in your prologue, I think it was. yeah. You described a scene at the bottom of the hill. Um, Yeah.
0: In the Tenderloin. Let me explain the scene just so that the listener gets it. So, I was driving through uh, downtown San Francisco through a rough neighborhood called the Tenderloin, and I was late to pick up my kids. And in the scene, I was describing how much of a douchebag I was because I was driving my fancy, stupid car through a very rough neighborhood, and I was late. And my screen was ringing, my teachers were calling, my wife was calling, like, where are you? You're supposed to pick up your kids. And I was like, all right. So I'm nuts through this Tenderloin area and I see a yellow light and I jump on it and then it turns to red and I slam on the brakes. And as I did so, I, I did so right in front of a crosswalk and there was three large men sitting there smoking a joint, drinking some beers. And the leader of this triumvirate looks over and says, who the fuck do you think you are white boy? <laughs> and I had my window open. So I was like, oh man, this isn't gonna go well. And they, they start coming towards me. And I was like, oh, I'm dead. So I actually, listened. I leaned out the window and I said, uh, I am a douchebag and I'm sorry. <laughs> and that leader of the group laughed so goddamn hard that he bent over at the waist and he started stomping his big boot and he goes, dude, That was awesome. You're awesome. And he came over and he shook my hand. And what I didn't, which wasn't part of the prologue, because we actually cleaned it up in editing, uh, it was too long of a story. But the best part of the story, which I thought, but my editors didn't, was that these guys sat and talked to me for 10 minutes. And they asked me what kind of car it was. And we started jocking and, and they just couldn't get over the fact that I admitted I was a douchebag. And we were in this rough neighborhood and there were cars behind me, but they weren't honking <laughs> because these three large men were standing there talking to me. So I was like driving around us and we actually had a really great conversation. We shook hands and uh, that was it. But that was the prologue that you read. And we did change some verbiage based on that. So
1: oh, that's kind of what, and I think that's, of what you want me to speak to so when he asked me to read the book the prologue so the the, like like he mentioned the verbiage was a bit different and the just the descriptive imagery um was exactly as he just explained except for it was very descriptive and it was it was definitely imagery and I think in your first cut, you might have put the black
0: guys or something. But even three large black men. Yeah, that's what I had. But even if
1: the word black wasn't there, anybody who's familiar with the area or who can read, because like I said, his his the writing, Jemmy's writing is amazing. So you would automatically feel that image. Um, Correct. Correct. And it did something to me, you know. So I got through the prologue. I think I got through the first couple chapters, and then. I was going to, I was like, yeah. And, and then, you know, you called me back and I said, yeah, I got, I said, I read a little bit. I read, a, I said, here's, here's, here's the issue I have with the scene. And the issue wasn't so much the scene as the imagery. And yeah. it wasn't that it was inaccurate or invalid. It was just that I think the story you just gave didn't really portray the image in the that that specific image you know the the happy ending right image in the book and i think that is where i got stuck
0: yeah that's so, a good point well you actually said that i was unintentionally propagating a stereotype yeah right which yeah. was a bad neighborhood black guys you know calling me out Absolutely. on my shit um And yeah, and and, in the first descriptor too, I actually said I disrespected these young men in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so I deserve that. And that got cut too. Because I mean, the the issue which I found out about editors in general is that less is more. (laughs) And I talk as, I I write like I talk. So (laughs) it needs to be abridged. Uh, But yeah, and I think that was the same exact reasoning for sending the uncut video of Dax and I's larger discussion. Mm -hmm. um, You know, that that was a piece of it. So when I handed you that, it's kind of this, you know, similar things, right? Where you were like right. so, we were talking about my home. I think is right. what Dax and I started talking.
1: Right. So then yeah. so then I got the uncut version of the podcast um over Letters to My White Male Friends, which is an amazing yeah. book. Um and I think my first comment was something like, Oh my god, Joey, you are simply the embodiment embodiment of white, male, everything. Privilege. Yeah. yeah. I was like, and you said, how so? And I said, just your, just your, your mannerisms. It was yeah. a lot of your mannerisms. Yeah. Uncomfortable laughs. Um, right. <laughs> laughing in the wrong places. Yeah. Um, and not that this is, not that this is, I think that what, what the, uh, I would say the point of this discussion is just one specifically to, for folks to understand that we can have a discussion. Right. And then also, I just think there's, if any problem exists, I would consider myself a problem solver. And I think you would too. So we're not really here to criticize the critics. We're here more to look for solutions or Correct. path towards that. And so, um, so I think I've pointed those things out and then, you said it's really wrong. You said it's really long. So don't try to just sit there. And so I thought I was just going to kind of listen to it. And then at the end of the night, I think I ended up with a notepad and a pen and a highlighter. <laughs> and I was just <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Um, so I think that's where this whole discussion started. And it has evolved.
0: It has. And I think that what I learned from a lot of your critiques, specifically around my inappropriate timing with laughter is that i laugh when i'm when i'm talking about or analyzing something that's completely absurd Mm -hmm. and a lot of the a lot of the content within dax's book was sadly a shock for me Mm -hmm. i should have known more i haven't i and then he, he asked me specifically why what made you start to focus on this over the last couple of years? And, and you know, you're 54 years old. Like what, why now? And I explained to him that I've been a stay-at-home dad for the last four years. And in that process, writing my book and helping raise my children, I had all this extra time. And so I wasn't reading business books all the time anymore. I was reading books like James Baldwin and Tanasi Coates and and old pieces of Matthew Evers and MLK. And I was just trying to understand. More of what was going on, specific to these very topical conversations in our culture today around critical race theory and racism and systemic racism—is it here and lies it here—and those pieces. And so I said, "Well, to be perfectly candid, Dax, the reason that I didn't focus on this is because I was focused on one thing my whole life, and that was me, and I didn't care about anybody else. And it was, what can I do to make money, and then what can I do to put more money in the bank, and then what can I do to?" you know, focus on me and take care of me. I also think that that's a big part of the problem is that people, I don't think that most of the population is selfish as I am, to be clear. (laughs) But after I kind of popped my head up and looked around and started to see the culture that I live in, specifically in San Francisco, and then having all this time to read, I was just shocked. And part of where Dax's book really hit me and it's probably a good time to just go into it. One passage may be hard. Go ahead. But I think before
1: you get into it, I think it's important to note that Dex's question, and he explains this in the book his question about, like, why now? Why are you interested yeah. now? I think, you know, as a people, as a people, we, and I'm going to say meaning black, black people, yeah. and I'm not going to use a black collective because I don't think that exists. No. But I think we're just often leery of when whites are interested in racism and and we're not leery so much because we don't trust you. We're leery because it's a matter of are you using this for you or mm-hmm. are you trying to find out about something about me? It's a good point. Um, and that goes along with everything that racism, and inequalities and discrimination and prejudice embody because there are um, um, not stereotypes, but um, people are profiled. I mean, we're profiled yeah. every day. Black yeah. people are pro- I mean, we're we're profiled for work. We're profiled for our names. We're profiled by the cops, by law enforcement. We're profiled yeah. by local government. I mean, we are a people that has been profiled since, since our freedom. And since that's the case, it is important to know what is your intent?
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a funny thing that I didn't think about that. And you've known me now for 13 years. So I, I don't even know what my response to him on that was. I think it was just, I it was because I woke up.
1: Oh, you were honest. Right? Yeah. You were, you were yeah. honest. Yeah. And, but I, but I, but I, I remember he talked specifically about that in the book when he, when he um, worked for nonprofits and he realized that nonprofits weren't exactly friends of communities. Right. They were friends, but they still maintained a type of foe. And so I just think, I think that point is, I think that point is important to bring out because it's not necessarily, I don't, I don't think Black people necessarily have a distrust. For the majority, I just think it's more of a apprehension.
0: Yeah, And I, it's understandable in considering his life. And he does admit that he had a very privileged upbringing, mm-hmm. but he also did suffer that exact profile that he talked about when he and his buddy were outside doing pull-ups on some scaffolding in front of a bar in an upscale neighborhood in Washington, D.C. during their second year of law school. So they were dressed up. they were They looked nice. And the and the police asked them what they were doing. Didn't listen. Started beating on them, and threw them in jail for three days because it was over the weekend and they couldn't get out. and And he asked me, and he asked all of us the 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 title. You know, my white male friends. He asked all of his white male friends, "Would that ever happen to you?"
1: Right. And I think that's and yeah, and that's. And
0: that's, I said unequivocally, never. <laughs> it would never where, where happen to me.
1: Kids? And I think that's the no. reason I'm here, and that's the reason I think you know, on along this journey of this interview, you know, I was really excited at first. And then my, my soul was very troubled, just troubled, just because it's such a, it's such a deep topic, especially, you know, now that I have a kid. Um, And so this is not, and so I think, and I'm saying this to say, I think it's understandable, not, I mean, for people who don't know you, Joey, not everybody's going to know that you're selfish in that capacity right. <laughs> but you know i think it is natural that people are selfish and self-serving i think that's a natural human state of being yeah. but i think when you are but i think also when you are self-serving to the point of someone else's expense i think that's that's when it becomes problematic
0: yeah well and that's a big piece of the anti-racist platform Right. Which is a big discussion out there. And he talked about that, too. He said, you know, I'm not necessarily preaching anti-racism, but the the notion is correct, Mm -hmm. is that if you're not actually helping, then you're not then you are hurting the cause. And that was part of my own willful ignorance, I guess, was.
1: But I love that you're, you're, and I didn't mean to cut you off, I'm sorry, but I love that you're willfully ignorant because I think so many other people out there think that they are not ignorant or they think that they understand because they know a Black person or they have a Black friend or Mm -hmm. they adopted some Black kids. I think that they really feel like they may understand or they're going to make the world better in this capacity. But it really is important for you to understand that race right. is a social construct and racism does exist in America. And I think yep. if you don't seek to understand, like you've said many times, I, I have so much reading to do. Like, yeah, I didn't know any of this, you know, yeah. and I'm like, imagine being in a position to where you have you are totally oblivious to this. And I was birthed into it. So Correct. I have been coached and trained on how to approach this and how to look at this and how to avoid this and how to be this way since I breathed my first breath on this earth.
0: Yeah, well, that's also why I think that the the books written by the men that I've mentioned mm-hmm. and women too, I haven't read a lot on females point of view, Kimberly Crenshaw and folks like that, but the idea there meaning that Ta-Nehisi Coates has been a big, uh, mm-hmm. I, I love his prose. He's such a brilliant writer. He's poetic, and he's you know very kind of an ode to W. E. Du And and between me, and, <clears throat> between me and the world, was so powerful because it talked to a lot of the things that Dax talked about, which is and this is one pa- the coats? Yeah, between me and the world, the book of okay. Tomasi Coates and, and what he talked about. What they had in common with their stories, and this is kind of the bigger narrative on that, is that, and this is what I've said to a couple people on the critical race theory episode. There's been a lot of comments that you know CRT is racist and it's you know it's wrong. And so I'm going back, and and one of the commenters said to me the other day, "Please, you know, give me an example of racism. Give me an example of systemic racism. Give me an example of institutional racism." And I was like, "Wow, this is we're still here." And and this was a very uh, it was a very cordial. Person, he wasn't calling me names, and he wasn't. He he seemed educated, and he had nice language, and it was cool. But that was an example for me that if you read James Baldwin, and if you read Ta Nehisi Coates, and if you read Medgar Evers, and if you read MLK, and you, and the the stories are all the same. So there's no way you could conflate these stories because they're so identical in many of the, specifically in the meta narrative. It's just. Mm-hmm. There's racism. It's not a a debate. And one thing that that seems to be a reoccurring theme in all of them is they don't own their own bodies. And that was one thing I didn't get, you know, previous. And that's why I wanted to kind of start there was that Dax actually said that his father, he was playing in a park, and I'm paraphrasing him. Mm -hmm. He was playing in a park and he ran off the playground with a friend and they were doing nothing. His daddy didn't know where he was. And his dad was terrified. And when he got back, he actually slapped him with a belt on the rear end. And he tried to instill within him that white people can take your soul with no ramifications. And this was when he was a young boy, eight, nine years old. And he needed to remind his son that he did not own his body. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And and that's the same thing that Ta-Nehisi Coates says, the same thing Baldwin talks about. And what that really means was represented in, you know, fast forward, to when Dax was in law school, that's exactly what happened to him. He didn't own his body.
1: Right. And it's still happening. I mean, yeah, I mean, every there's day. Countless, the, there's countless Ahmaud Arbor. There's countless incidents where it's still happening. Um, I think at the end of this book, he mentions when he has a daughter, you know, all he sees is Brianna Taylor. And so yeah. I immediately, I immediately connected with that because I have a son. And all I think about is, yeah. And mind you, we're talking in a setting, we're talking in suburbia. I, I live in the suburbs. He lives in a very nice area. Like we're not talking in your stereotypical, you know, like the neighborhood you described in the in your prologue, right? We're not talking right. in a stereotypical environment. We're talking in an environment that provides the most, the safest, most secure, most stable, you know, community setting, HOAs and all of that. Feed, right. Fees every right. month. I mean, but all you think is, all I think is a Amara Arborate. Like, what if my kid goes running one day because he's training right. or right. going to the gym? Mom, can I run to the gym? Can I run to the park? And right. you get, and this is this has happened. This has happened in my neighborhood. Yeah. This has happened in my neighborhood. I have three friends, two friends, a friend, she has twin girls. She's at the park with her girls and a big F-250 Rolls by two Confederate flags, <laughs> sure. and this is what they're screaming out of the window. And how do you explain this to your children? This is this is right here in my neighborhood. This happened. Wow. less than a year ago.
0: Yes, yeah, that's. when well, that's kind of where. That's what I'm hoping to do with this platform, and and I guess to analyze my my motive. You know, the idea that the original idea for this platform is just to talk about really deep topics. Mm-hmm. That can't be discussed on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just too long. The long form content is necessary to kind of give take back and mm-hmm. forth and then actually do mm-hmm. some homework and understand that all of these things are are part and parcel to our culture today. And and a lot of things that Dax brought up in his book, specifically the systemic racism of the eighties and Reagan and what took place with the welfare queen and narrative and you know the court systems. And that was one of the reasons I was laughing, I think, inappropriately, was we talked about the fact that Thurgood Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas. And again, I just it's a nervous reaction because it's like, that's as I said to him, it's existentially cruel that that happened in, in so many areas. And that's a big piece of where I think our culture gets lost when they say that racism was in the past and that it's it's no longer here because we've had a Black president, we have a Black secretary of defense, we have Black executives, we have, let's just say, a lot more success than we used to have within the Black community, but it's not on par by any standard of measurement. And I think that, that that's a big piece of the discussion that has to be more polite because you have to, you kind of have to give a little more, and we'll get into this too with the Robin DeAngelo side, but I think that white people don't want to be told that they are racist just and as, they, a, as a group and my rebuttal to that is
1: but do white people really want to understand
0: i think some do right okay. but i think i also think that there's a there's a socioeconomic component to it and Absolutely. i think that no that's question. where like when i was growing up you know my mom is mexican and, and half white or as she's a mix we don't know but we were poor and so my mom wasn't paying attention to race at all, even though she was being, you know, people actually treated my mother different because she was brown and she was poor. And so I saw some of that racism within the, within my own life, but it was very minimal. And because I can pass as white, you know, it, I've never had to deal with any kind of racial. And I
1: think also, and I think, and I don't know, I, I just think it's worth mentioning. You're all, Your mom is also very religious. Yes. And I think when you when you really subscribe to a higher deity, I think your vision surpasses race, creed, color, any of that. Because you're not you're not focused on what other people think of you. Your focus is on your eternal your eternal salvation or your, you know, your your and, and your works reflect your beliefs. And so, so I think, and I think that's worth mentioning because when you said your mom wasn't really focused on it, I can, I can relate to that because our moms actually, you know, are a member of the same religion and the same church. And I went to an all white private school, a Catholic school, and my mom wasn't focused on any of that either, but she was very conscious of it. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: when I say she was very conscious of it, I mean, she was very conscious of she, we, she communicated with me a lot in terms of what happened today. She was very conscious of when I was sent home for wearing uh, a cross necklace because there was no jewelry. She was right. very conscious of keep, me keeping a grade log because my grades would often be changed by, by white teachers. Because if you're not keeping up with your grades and you don't know how to average them, you know, what Dax mentions in there, there's no way that a Black kid is going to be the salutatorian of this institution. Right. Right, And he, he talks a lot about that. And so I just think it's interesting that even though when they're not really focused on, and even, even going back to my first, and like I said, Dax had way more privilege than I did. Um, I come from a small town and in the South. And I think... Even the beginning, and as as I've been reflecting on these conversations we've been having, um, my parents had to fight to even form a class for us. It was myself. I was the only Black child. It was, there was, I think, three Indian students, one Mexican student, my best friend, I think he was Asian. And they did not want, this school did not want to open a class for us. They did not want, they had the numbers. All they said was they needed the numbers, right? You have to have the numbers to start a new class. They did not want to hire a teacher to form a new class.
0: Was it because it was so many mixed races?
1: I can't, I can't say that. I can't say that yeah. specifically but yeah. as we've had this discussion it is the first thing that came to my mind and i and i, I just remember my mom telling me we had multiple meetings multiple meetings multiple
0: wow meetings. and i think that is the that's the crux of critical race theory and let me just explain this to the listeners who haven't okay. listened to my other stuff critical race theory that's being banting about in the news is a very different interpretation so let me start with the original idea of it. So it started in the mid-70s with Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and other academics at the graduate school level and law school level. So this is a very high-end pursuit that academia has historically been known for, is that if they can actually start to foster ideas with some of the biggest thinkers, then they think that will leach down into the culture. And so it, it's been that since the 70s. It is specifically about how America is racist from its origin for slavery, how racism is woven into our culture, our institutions, our language, our thinking. And a lot of it is implicit now. It it was explicit, obviously, during slavery and Jim Crow and those kind of pieces, but the, the academic pursuit specific to these scholars was to try to understand what systemic racism has done to the Black community. And then they extended that to Chicano communities and Asian communities and other people of, of, let's just say, marginalized communities, right? So that was where critical race theory started. And then I think Kimberly Crenshaw actually coined the term intersectionality specific to uh, the feminist literature in the 70s and 80s, where it started to come out and said, hey, women are being oppressed. We need to do something for these women. And there was, you know, all the equality movements around that. And what she then pointed out was, okay, it is one thing to be a female, white, and be oppressed. But what about a black female? That's a very different piece. And so there's intersections to racism and culture and all these pieces. And so intersectionality was another academic pursuit to understand how does all this factor in. And so what took place and this is what I mentioned previously in the 1300 times that it was mentioned on Fox News you can see protests of parents in front of schools we don't want CRT taught to our children and this is where language is so important in our culture and this is I guess part of my the burn my saddle here is that I've spent 20 years in the media business and I understand how important language is and when you misrepresent language, it causes huge problems. And this is the case, in that we're not teaching critical race theory, which is a, a graduate school, law school level uh, intellectual pursuit to eight-year-olds. So that's just categorically false to begin with. And then I don't have the numbers specifically in front of me. So I, I just want to say they might pay off. But there well, was-
1: we're not teaching it, but I'm going to use an example that was on the news here in Texas and KDISD yesterday. So there was that's an author that. coming to do what authors do, read a book to the student that he wrote. And a parent came up and challenged the fact that this author was coming to a state school to read this book because the book promoted critical race theory.
0: Okay. But in, in what capacity?
1: Week. And so, and I can't remember the book. You can look it up. It's
0: and the... how old were the kids he was presenting this, this to? Was
1: elementary. This was elementary level. Okay. So elementary he... book.
0: Pieces and parts of it, meaning what one of the things they are teaching, and this is kind of where we need to get into this to help with the listener, mm-hmm. is that there are pieces, intersectionality is one of them that is being taught to corporations. And there's a young man named Christopher Rufo, who I've gotten a lot of data from. He is with the Manhattan Institute uh, in a think tank. He's a very smart young man who disagrees with critical race theory. And he said that 26 of our Fortune 100 companies are being taught intersectionality, which we'll get into in a second. Mm -hmm. Other pieces that are being taught to the K through 12 are that there are differences in the race so that white people historically have been the oppressor and that black people have been oppressed. So there are those type of theories specific to educating children is is the really big notion that Parents specifically, only white parents, but white parents are being concerned with. They're like, I don't want my children to know that our our race historically has oppressed a group of human beings. And I can understand that to a five year old. And as you know, we have young kids, so you know, Canon and, and I don't want to say your child's name, but I, those things, those things would, I can understand why parents would be concerned if I was teaching my eight year old that white people you know, had slaves and we were terrible. And this was, I get that. And so that's where I think the conversation gets lost in the media, is that these two pieces and parts are not the same. So we're arguing about words that don't mean the same thing. And and because of that, our our legislators are actually passing bills. So there's 21 states currently in our country who have introduced legislation to ban critical race theory from schools, from any type of teaching. And there's five that have actually introduced and signed and passed bills, Texas being one of them, which is not a big surprise, right? Texas is good at this. And so that is where, for me, that's where the problem is because we as a culture have to start to agree on what words mean right? We just don't, it was the same thing with defund the police, right? There's so many things that need to happen within restructuring or reimagining police departments, specifically in certain geos, but that phrase doesn't do any good because it's the same thing with critical race theory. You were banning this. And I think that the one thing that I'm starting to understand, and this is through, I don't know, maybe a thousand or so hours of homework, and reading, and studying, and interviewing people, is that if we, as a culture, and I think I said this to Dax, is that if you sat down with Dax, or Tana Hasi Coates, or any intellectual that really understands racism in our culture, specifically Black people, and you heard their stories, and you listened to them individually, and then you kind of started to cross-pollinate the same behaviors and the same patterns, It's really difficult as a white person to say, well, there's no such thing then as systemic racism, or there's no such thing as institutional racism, or there's no such thing, you know? Right.
1: And I would agree. And I'm going to come from two points. And I think you brought up two points. One, you said if you sit down with a black person and discuss racism or intersectionality, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest critics of critical race theory, right? It relies on storytelling over um, evidence-based, you know, evidence-based or any other kind of um, anything that the white man considers more credible than a story, Right. Or an experience, right? right? And I think, and now I'm going to speak as an educator okay. on teaching critical race theory in schools. And I'm not—I'm neutral. I'm gonna—I'm gonna sit on the fence on this one because <clears throat> I am an educator, and here's the problem I see with trying to teach it in schools. This is just a problem. Okay. As we know from the 2020 census count, our our, our country is less white okay? Yep. Because our country is less white, you have a lot of mixed children. That means mom's white, dad's black, dad's white, mom's black, mom's Mexican, dad's Vietnamese. I mean, it, I worked in a district where it was everybody. It's okay. everybody. It's not, I can't even, I can't sit here and point out one, you know, in one district I worked in, it was more black and interracial marriages in terms of black and white couples. But this, Specific specific school district school. It, it it was just mixed race. Okay. If I'm proposing a curriculum that tells you your your father, let's, I'm going to make the father the white man okay. is the oppressor, and your mother is oppressed. A mixed child already has a higher tendency to have an identity crisis, anyway, inherently. Okay. Because of how society talks to you, because of how you're seen, because of how you're viewed. I do not come from a mixed family. My mom is Black. My father is Black. It is written on their birth certificates. However, if you look at my mother, you may think otherwise. And I, at 43 years old, can remember countless times when people came up to me and my mom, oh my God, she's adopted. That's such a good mm. thing you did. She's adopted. Wow. Wow. And this I didn't is know that. Numerous times, these are her coworkers.
0: She's she was Whoa.
1: a school teacher. She these were wow. this is in the grocery store. This is all the time.
2: Hmm.
1: And so, for me, because I'm talking about it, it obviously did something to me, right? Sure. But at the time, I li- I remember just being being like, and this was my response to her do these people think I don't have a dad? Hmm. But I never perceived it as, no, these people don't think you have a black dad. Ah. And so I I just didn't, that didn't register to me because I go home to a traditional family every night.
0: But if if your mom appears white, they would almost have to just by default think that the dad was black <laughs> if you're black but
1: they didn't they
0: i know that's what I'm saying, it doesn't even make common sense right I was <laughs> doesn't even make sense.
1: She's, she's a baby boomer right so it wasn't very uh, common in fact it was it wasn't true. it wasn't even legal um it wasn't even legal at that time and we're from the south this is southwest louisiana we have totally different totally different <laughs> well
0: 1969 was loving v virginia right that was the first time we could marry interracially So, yeah. And she was
1: born in 1950. So I think, yeah. So I guess the only, you know, option would be to think you're adopted. I I don't know. I don't don't know. But anyway, I just, I say that, I say that to say, I do see why there, I see, I see the problems that could arise because.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good one. I didn't even think of.
1: Because teaching is not about, I mean, you know, you have mixed kids yourself. Like, yeah. Teaching when you teach students as a teacher, as a real educator, we teach students. I don't teach Chinese students, I don't teach Asian students, I don't teach blacks, I teach students. students. I teach to the best, I teach this kid to critically think and be the best kid they can be. Find your niche.
0: Okay. So that's a great, that's a great example of where we could get closer together as a culture, right there. Because I didn't even think of that, right? The fact that a teacher of your ilk. As a black woman, is saying, you know what? There's some considerations that need to be talked about here, specifically these mixed kids, and specifically what ages, because these are very dark. And they're I mean, pardon the word, but, but I mean, it's these are heavy topics. Probably a better word. Yeah, but they're heavy it's,
1: topics.
0: Yeah, and it's and so not, at we, what age? We tend to simplify it as oh, we're teaching race,
1: critical race theory in kids, but these legislatures and these lawmakers, one they don't have their kids in public school. Most of two, ways. they've True. never stepped foot in a classroom, or attended a PTO meeting, or right. looked at anything other than the budget, right? And, I, and I'm probably. and I'm being very judgmental here because I'm sure some of them have. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some of them have. I'm sure yeah. some of them do have their kids in state schools. I'm sure of this, right? Yeah. However, it is not their priority. That's not their priority, right? Well, the priorities uh, get I'm, reelected.
0: Their priorities get re-elected, and to get reelected, they need to do what their constituents are telling them, which is to ban critical race theory for K through 12. And and so, you know, this is, again, if we could talk as a culture, not hate each other, we could sit down and say, okay, let's just agree that, and I'm just throwing this number out, under 10, <laughs> we're not going to introduce this really heavy topic. But at, at the high school level, you know, is, sh- should it be taught in history? And this is actually goes back to, I think, the original purpose of critical race theory at the academic level in grad schools and law schools is that we as a culture need to understand our history, all of it.
1: And I think that and and that is what I was going to say next. I think we've, we've kind of brushed on this before and having taught in overseas schools, overseas American schools. And these are yeah. not this is not a. This school that I taught at was not, was serving the big five. When I say Exxon Chevron, I mean, this is not a, this is not a, 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 a a nonprofit funded school. Okay. Let's just say it that way. And having kids from over 60 countries come to us to learn this American curriculum, because most of them will go to the university in the United States or in the UK, or maybe even back home. But the goal is the goal for them is to learn the American curriculum. We need to learn how Americans think okay. That's all it is really right. But having these kids and watching them go to MUN, you know, watching them get on a plane, and go to MUN and watching them come and to be able to debate using their tech from the textbooks that they learned about their civil wars in, and the textbooks that they learned about their language and their history.
0: What is MUN, by the way?
1: Um, model let me see, I think model United Nations
0: okay, thanks
1: mock United Nations maybe, hold on let me look Um, but accurate. but um, just having this diverse group of kids and watching them not prescribe to racism because racism is not really, model United Nations, it's model United Nations but racism is not something that they're not, I, I, I wouldn't even, it, I wouldn't say it doesn't exist. They're very aware that it exists, but they're very prone to stand up and fight for each other in any situation. They have a voice. Hmm. And we took our students on international trips starting in the fourth grade. Okay. So they're also equipped to travel and I think one of the solutions when I was when since we've gone through our talks I came up with three solutions or three kind of pathways that I wanted to present as possible just options just just mm-hmm. starting points really and one of them has to do with proximity because I think proximity to the issue and proximity to people, is is undervalued in terms okay. of finding harmony or creating harmony in our environment
0: proximity okay. to diverse people or what do you mean proximity to what
1: proximity yeah to to people just to people in their experiences
0: right but like diversity in the, in the sense i'm just thinking this if a lot of schools here in america have a lot of white kids in the classroom and that's it so, they don't the proximity is to other white people. What you're saying is proximity to other ethnicities and cultures, right? Right,
1: right, right. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, okay, yeah,
1: right, that have different experiences than you,
0: yeah, like your schools in Nigeria, where it was right. actually really mixed, right? It,
1: it was nothing but mixed.
0: The only tie they actually had was privilege, wealth.
1: The only tie they have is privilege, okay, the only tie they have is privilege and wealth. And I'm talking Nigerian kids,
0: right, I'm talking German, British, kids. German, I'm talking French,
1: Right. Same thing There, I'm talking uh, Chinese. Yep. Um, Serbia. I mean, yeah. Georgia. Truly,
0: truly mixed. Truly
1: yeah. mixed. Truly mixed. And right. I would say this: the only kids that really came there with a chip on their shoulder and mad that they had to be there were the American white kids.
0: What percentage were American white kids at your school in Nigeria?
1: So. There was a requirement that we had to maintain 10% American. Um, right. but it it dropped. As oil dropped, we dropped.
0: Sure. That makes sense.
1: <laughs> as the bar- as the price of oil dropped.
0: Right. Dropped. The executives weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, but other than that, but I will say this. People people only came for the school. People only came People only took the package because they heard such amazing things. About right.
0: Well, you love the school. You've even said I, before you'd like your own son to go there. Yeah. I,
1: because it was a real, it was a teaching environment. Right. It was a t- when you have 13 kids to the to a class, which is what you should Holy have. Oh shit. That's, that's it? That's it.
0: 13. No wonder. Okay.
1: You see what I'm saying? And then in pre-K, you have two aides and one teacher to a pre-K class and they only go nine to two. That's all a pre ker needs right you see what everything was what you read in the textbook about being a teacher that's what we had in action
0: okay well this is great then because this is actually a microcosm that could prove positive to discussion so proximity is the first one of your three Mm -hmm. after that so proximity to actual cultures and ethnicities that's one what's the second what's the second one
1: just to stay away from judgment okay I think it's really to stay away from judgment. And when I say that, and this goes to racism because this is one of the parts of the social construct and I see it a lot in education. Don't go read this kid's bio before you connect with this kid's person.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. And I say that, and when I say that, I mean like when a kid comes to high school, yes, he has a disciplinary record or might.
0: Right. Right.
1: I never read a kid's disciplinary record.
0: You want to get to know him or her first.
1: Yeah, because yeah. then in our education system, when does the kid get a second chance? When am I ever granted a second chance? And I think this yeah. goes, and I think, and I don't know if Dax would agree, but maybe you can tell me, and I'm, I'm I'm coattailing on Dax's butt letters to my white male friends. This also goes to white male executives who are looking to, initiate the deis portion of their company right
0: yeah
1: why is it that you when you and even and i can even say this in community organizations when a somebody wants to donate money hmm. they might come to a certain community or a certain area and say who is the black trusted voice in this area hmm. or who is the black um, spokesperson for this group. yeah this 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 has been an experience of mine in terms of white men. why why is it black? And I think when you ask white men like why do you have to put black in front of it? Why does it have to be black? Why can't it be who is the trusted voice? in this community? And do you do that to your white counterparts if you're looking to hire a white manager? Do you say who is the white male trusted voice or who should I hire? Who's the best qualified white male for this position? No, it's only done for diverse groups. If I have a special interest or if I'm looking to check off this box for this grant application because I need to be able to write off all 100% of those funds, right?
2: Right, right.
1: And I think that feeds the narrative because, and it also goes to my first point, which is proximity, because if I'm the trusted voice in this area and we're talking about, I don't know, let's just talk about a community center, and I'm the trusted voice, I should know my community. I should know the demographics of my community. I should know the geography of my community. I should know the data of my community. I should have a proximity to my community. Okay. And I think that what I feel, what I feel is that a lot of white men like to throw money at a problem without having the proximity to, without, without having to touch that problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, that goes to the socioeconomics I talked about previously, because I think it, it it actually goes to both the elite in our community, the top quintile, or actually even the top 10%, and then the bottom. So using my mom as an example, proximity was something my mom didn't understand because she didn't have time. Mm-hmm. I, like to, I like to use the analogy of my mom you know, we had a little boat and my mom was bailing out the little boat constantly. And so when people say, well, why wasn't your mom navigating towards a capitalist structure? And why didn't she go and get an education? And why didn't she do this? And why, I mean, because she had two or three jobs constantly and she had three little boys and no dad. And she was constantly panicked (laughs) about paying the bills. I like didn't focus on any of it.
1: Wholeheartedly agree. And so this becomes a question because this is the main question when you're a single mom, as I am. Right. So it becomes because all of your energy becomes put into your children. You literally pass the you pass the baton and you're like, I got to hustle to feed you and to nourish you and to love you and to be competitive in every academic athletic sport there is because I'm going to pass the torch to you and you're going to have to fight the fight. Because if I have a voice as a black female and I speak up, I'm getting fired. Right. And I can't, I can't, and I shouldn't say that definitively. It is a possibility that I will be fired over.
0: Well, it's a bigger but possibility.
1: It's a bigger, <laughs> and I think this, sure. it's a yeah. bigger possibility that a Black person would get fired for using their voice because of all the stereotypes that exist that are out yep. there. And I'm not even going to mention them because I know nope. anybody Sorry, that's listening can. But over, and I, I think we failed to mention this, someone else, if a white male was in my position, they're granted second chances. Yeah. Next time we'll we'll do better. And next, next time, maybe we should have an improvement plan. Well, yeah. That you and have an improvement
0: plan. We saw that with the Capitol storming on January 6th. That was white people. There was no guns. There was no violence. And they let them all go because they're white, At, right? If that was BLM, they would have been dead. Anybody on the steps.
1: had had infiltrated federal a federal oh, yeah, yeah. building armed
0: dead dead. They'd have been dead
1: and justified, not just no dead. No, you're right. Justified.
0: I'm I'm with you, and so that's an example of the problem. What I was getting to with my mom at sorry, the social economic is the same thing with rich men. One of the things that I think is poisonous in our narrative is that white men, and this is a really cogent talking point on the right. When you say white men it irritates all my friends from high school who are artisans. Okay. Okay? And a lot of my friends and my relatives are electricians and carpenters and hardworking, physically hardworking men. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the narrative to me has to be reframed because there's a very small selection of white men in power. I will agree 100% that there's a patriarchy, which people talk about, deny. I think it, it exists, but it's very small. And so if you look at white men in power, me and my friends, if you will, right, where we run companies and have access and have the time to think and deliberate, it's, that's a narrative that gets tough. And that actually is maybe a good segue into like the DEI stuff that you talked about. DAX is a DEI consultant, goes into corporations and teaches intersectionality, Mm -hmm. teaches diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he defined those things for me, right? Equity is being represented in the corporation. And diversity is obvious. It's having different ethnicities and cultures represented in your company. And inclusion is that they get a voice in the overall aspect of running a business. And the one thing that I do know very well is the ad business. So I was in the advertising and media business for 20 years. And the one thing that I shared with Dax that I'll share with you is that in our industry, we struggled to find black employees. Across the board for 20 years. it was. We talked about this ad nauseum at conferences. I had black friends in the industry, but very, very few, statistically. And it actually hurts the cause. So the cause specific, and I don't think every industry is this way, but advertising as an example is if I'm being hired by a brand, let's just say Pepsi, to do a campaign for their stuff. And I referenced the same campaign with Dax. If you remember when Kendall Jenner came out with the Pepsi and she had the black woman doing her hair and then she came over and handed a Pepsi can to try to, you know, solve this racial problem that we have. It was one of the most tone deaf campaigns ever launched. It was an internal agency at Pepsi. There were no black people involved. The running joke in our community is that the market research didn't even talk to black people. There were no black people in the company. There were no black people anywhere (laughs) near the campaign because it was so tone deaf. And so my belabored point there is that historically, at our agency, we had a gay creative director. We had a lesbian associate creative director. We had Chinese females, white males, Asian. We we And we did it on purpose. And as you know, there's not a lot of morality <laughs> in the way I was running my company. It was like, whatever I can do to make money, right? I'm gonna try and make as much money as I can. And I loved all these wonderfully creative people, but I had to specifically go out and look for that because not only did I, have, I want ethnicity, on the diversity front. I wanted viewpoint diversity. Mm -hmm. So I wanted people that came from different sides of the aisle. So, you know, historically, if you look at conservative people, they conserve institutions. And a lot of times their personality traits dictate things like uh, sanctity and order. And they're very good at that. So if you have someone running, you know, a structure with inside your ad agency, and that person has a lot high scores, really high in his personality tests, which we do with all leadership. We know that person is going to do a good job. And then the same thing stands true with like left-leaning liberals. A lot of times they're really good strategic thinkers because they like to blow shit up and rethink stuff because that's liberal in general. It's like, I want to change this or I want to to make progress, hence the progressive term. And so like these all things in the agency world exists not to the optimal levels, Mm -hmm. but we did them on purpose for the purpose of money. Mm -hmm. It was like, we're going to do better if we have diversity in our companies. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where Again, if we can start to talk about Dax's approach as a DEI consultant, that's how he comes in and talks and he leads with equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought was great about his book and his practice. And we don't have to get into his specific practice, but when he goes out to companies and he talks to them about these pieces, I think he's doing a really good job and he has a very calm, sweet demeanor. He's a very kind human being. And I think that comes across in the training. And because we're talking about the polarization of our culture and what is taking place in the, again, critical race theory derivative is intersectionality. Intersectionality is being taught to corporate executives as we speak all over the country. Okay. The leading advocate and DEI consultant in that case is a woman named Robin D'Angelo, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called White Fragility, which you and I have both read and we've talked about quite a bit. We tried to keep as much as we could for this conversation, but I also want to preface that what I believe is that Robin D'Angelo has a big heart. I think she comes from the right place. I don't think she's trying to cause more turmoil or division between white and black people. And we're just going to stick with white and black people with her stuff because obviously there's other intersectionality pieces, but all the homework we did together was specific to black culture and Robin but her, as, husband,
1: but her audience is a white audience. Correct. That was written to a white audience.
0: It was. And in part because she believes that white people, and this isn't even um, pulling any punches, she believes that all white people are racist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Implicitly. And she believes that because our origins of a, as a country are based in white supremacy that most of our thinking and behavior is based in white supremacy. And so she will actually frame her discussions within her sessions with those exact pieces. So let's talk about the positives of Robin first, okay. because there's a lot there. One of which you mentioned to me, and we didn't elaborate on it on purpose, but you said she named a lot of things inside the book that I wanted to I've I wanted other people to recognize but no one has done so to date. So why don't we start there because again I think she she's trying. I just have some <laughs> huge problems well, with think, the, so I think we
1: we have to mention who she wrote the book to. She didn't write the book to me because she wrote what she did was she documented my experiences. Correct. And she framed them in these socio these sociological terms and these intellectual terms and all the terms that that the majority culture like needs to hear to even the same reason that critical race theory is critical race theory, because it needed to be a theory for it to even be correct brought to the Disgust.
0: table. Well, and let me also interrupt. She, she has a PhD in, in white studies. So this is a very educated woman. This isn't someone who just like decided she was going to go out and be a consultant. So I'm, I'm sorry, but I want to mention that.
1: And so I do. So so what she did was, yeah, so she took all of my experiences and she documented in a very formal way, a very, very, like you said, she's very educated in a very formal way. And she presented it. And that's And I think and she and everything, everything is. Well, I think she had three base, two bases. I think one was white supremacy. I think Mm -hmm. the other and maybe it's just a part of it was white solidarity. Right. and um yep. i think the third one would have to be black oppression okay cuz those none of those three i mean those to me those were the the legs of her her book yeah that's what everything stood on
0: i agree i agree what did you like most what resonates with you most I from think the book
1: what resonated me what what resonated most I think, and I think that's exactly what resonated with me most. Exactly. was we'll her ability? Because a lot okay. of times, especially with CRT, I think just any critical theory in general, it's so wordy, you know, yeah. it's so wordy and it's so formal and it's so not real. It's not action. It's not the everyday steps. It's, it's the grant that you write to get the millions of dollars so you can send the people out there to feed the people. Right, it's right, not right. the it's not the groundwork, and okay. I think as I think as a member of the Black race, being Black and and owning it, I think the groundwork is not. I think the groundwork is the experience is is everything. I mean, it's not. I don't know. I don't know how to say for someone to be able to put your life into words is is pretty powerful. And I say it's powerful because it's like, oh, so you do know what you've been doing all these years. Like these aren't just happenstance situations. This isn't just me being kind of, um, you know, feeling like I'm wrong because I was taught like Dax Mentor, I don't think Dax. somebody mentioned that, you know, you you know, your parents tell you just treat everybody the same. Don't choose sides, like be equal, be fair, you know, and this is what you try to do as a child. But then yet you're treated unfairly or you're not, your application is not seen for the Girl Scouts or you're not. And you're like, why? And I remember this specifically. It was like so many childhood instances came back as we began talking that I never even gave merit to. Because yeah. I know that my parents saw them, but to define them to me is only going to create a roadblock. And wow. so let's just overlook it because they weren't willing to fight for yeah. it. Because and, and 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 at the end of the day, it wasn't really that important for them to fight for anyway, because it was just going to cost them a little more money, right? Yeah. When when they knew in their hearts. The important things they're going to pay for, the the study abroad program to Europe, the trips overseas. Those are things they're willing to invest in. They're not really. We're not really going to invest in this stuff because then it's, it's more red tape. We're going to have to fight with these people, and and that's how it's approached, really. So, unbeknownst to me, I'm just thinking, oh, I guess they didn't want me in that
0: that organization. Okay. Well, and that goes to what this is an excerpt from her book that I found. Actually, I know you liked. In some ways, racism's adaptations over time are more sinister than concrete rules, such as Jim Crow. The adaptations produce the same outcome. People of color are blocked from moving forward, but have been put in place by a dominant white society that won't or can't admit to its beliefs. And that was one of the things that you talked about. And I actually have it down here in my notes because she is saying that the adaptations themselves are sinister because they're silent and they're woven into the fabric of our culture. And it is worse than Jim Crow then, because Jim Crow was at least blatant (laughs) and out there versus all of the indiscretions that you talked about and that you felt when you read her stuff. And I think she also did a really good job of bringing in the Black community. I've I've read detractors of hers that said she didn't do that, but everything I've read said she did. And she has a, a very big staff of African-Americans too, that are, are helping, you know, move this narrative forward. So I don't, I don't know. I just wanted to address that, but that's a piece that I think that we can agree on, right. That it's. But I think,
1: right. Oh, absolutely. But with her, you right with her, but I think you being an ad exec, don't you, I mean, I think you're more an expert before anybody to understand subliminal marketing. I mean, it's not, the, the hidden and the silence, you know, I can go into one Walmart store and the first thing I see is chips and spam and, you know, it's just, just the placement, right?
0: Based and on the actual, demo, based on the geography, based on the geography, sure. based
1: on the data. And then I can go into another Walmart and the first thing is fresh fruit Imported mm-hmm. fruit. Right, right. You know, organic salads. It's the same thing. And I think that's where the intersection intersectionality plays its biggest part, because it is all associated with data. It's all associated with geography. And the right. geography tells you the ge- demographics of who lives there or who, who patronizes the store. And so I guess my question is, I mean, is that a part of running an ad agency, isn't it a part of it? Don't you have to target it? Aren't you targeting an audience to advertise to that audience? Yeah,
0: I mean, we do tons of market research, both quantitative and qualitative. And so for those who don't know, quantitative is just that that mass. We get thousands and thousands of people and qualitative is usually done in focus groups where it could be 10 to 14 people. Once you get like 11 people to agree on something, it's usually kind of where you sit. And yeah, we do psychographic, ethnographic and demographic studies. We want to know where everything is placed, and then the s- sequential messaging is kind of where the power comes in. There's this mythical number in advertising that if you get a message in front of somebody seven times, they remember it.
1: But would you say right. that that advertising? So, I guess my question to you then is: Would you say that that advertising is is money driven, or is
0: or which I don't think there's anything else other than money driven in the ad business. So Everything's about money.
1: So would you say that would you say that there is even a consciousness of some sort of racism?
0: I don't think there's any explicit racism with any okay. of the people I worked with. Okay. I, I and again, that's I want to be clear. Ad ad people get a bad rap, but there are a lot of amazingly creative, wonderful people out there just telling stories. And what's happened in the last 10 years specifically, and we chronicled this in the documentary that we shot called The Naked Brand. It was about what we called responsible brands, trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. trying to be I remember that, yeah. transparent in their communications, understanding their supply chain, understanding their partners, understanding where their products are manufactured, sewed up, shipped, carbon footprint, all of that. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of companies out there that are actually attempting to do good. And I think that's a, it's progress. I think that that's where, you know, with the, and to be clear with our listeners here is that when you go into a corporation and you have a training session, And Robin and her team come in and frame it the way they're framing it. That's kind of what I was getting to. There's good stuff in it. She talks about implicit bias. She talks about microaggressions. She talks about um, racism and systemic racism and how it's palpable, even today in our culture. And I don't think anyone of reason would disagree with any of that.
1: I think that the approach, she approaches it as as if it's in uh, Yeah, well and I I know, Joey. I know. Okay. So let me let me just talk a little bit about so please. I you know, like I, I told you the book kind of it took a while, like it didn't take a while to get through because it was definitely a page turner for me. Um, just in terms of being able to relate to it. And I'm nobody, just so everybody knows, like, I don't have any big degrees. I'm no, (laughs) I'm not one of these. You have a master's degree. I'm just, just, I I have a heart for education. Like if your children were ever in my class, like they still know me. They are lucky, yes. I'm just one of those people that's very passionate and likes to have these conversations because I feel like without these conversations, there will be no progress. And so, her book, I, I, I don't think, I think she's, so I think the way that she wrote her book had all the language necessary for the corporate executives to contract her. I think, I think it made for a perfect little contract package. I think she had everything. She checked all the boxes. Can I get in the door? So she got in the door in terms of dealing with people and teaching or training or coaching or meeting people where they are. Yeah. 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 I just feel like it's not even that she approached them as bots. It's just that if you're trying to transform or awaken because we right. like that word in the black community if you're trying to transform or awaken someone or make them ignore make them aware of their ignorance in a certain area and we're right. in a society where even ignorant can be a very uh
0: if you call it a pejorative term yeah
1: yeah you you, yeah. you can offend somebody but just call them ignorant ignorant simply means you didn't know right right I'm just ignorant to those to that area. Right. Um I just I don't feel that if I am my approach is white, like I let's use her what second to last chapter, white women's tears. Let's use oh that.
0: yeah, that's a powerful.
1: I that one with So Let's use white women's tears. Yes. Feel and you know she starts off with this example of one of her co-workers, who's a black lit female, coming to her and saying, "You know, I just don't feel. I just don't feel like dealing with white women's tears today." Okay, and then from that, she she spells out how she asked the group that if you felt tears coming, to please leave the room. Yep. and show if you're white and if and right right, and I, don't, I don't cry right she told right. her not to cry
0: or so, or leave yeah. or
1: leave okay and
0: so, that she would leave with you and support you and be there for you so she was right. being kind
1: right yeah. but her point and to her point her point is not to take away the benefit of the training for the other people because you have now attracted attention to your emotional state. So I understood Correct. all that.
0: Okay, I, that's one piece that I, I'm like, all right, I can buy that for a second. The next piece that is, and she says this in her book, that white women's tears trigger black people's visualization of lynchings. That's in her actual work. And so that to me... Is taking it not just jumping the shark, but that's just fucking crazy. That's crazy. And I'm your black woman, you tell me if I if you see my wife crying, well, she's not white, but if you saw a Chinese woman crying, she well, is gonna come for you for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you I don't mean, even it, know, it doesn't even work. It doesn't, well, that, that is nonsense. And that I actually
1: used, I think she used the wrong example.
0: So, well, John McHorter, just so you know, John McHorter is a Professor at Columbia, and he actually talks to this specific piece. And I got what did his he? Article. Which book did he write? I've read a few of his. He's books. written a couple. He wrote nine nine nasty words. That's a one of them. He, he's a linguistic so he talks about that.
2: Hey, but but I've read one. I have one right here. What is? I have one right here. I don't know. I've read a couple
0: of them. Okay. But he's also more on the conservative side, and he he he's against CRT, by the way. And so when he comes in and talks about hmm. her, he he actually references that. Where he talks about where she brings up things like, yeah, he brings up black black people are reminded of white women crying as they lied about being raped by black men eons ago. So he was right. addressing the same thing. That that's not okay. That's taking it way too far. And if you
1: but I, but I will, but wait, let me stop you there. I will say that that is probably what I'm reminded of. Having a son, I would say. That would be All right. I'll if, I, I If you not, not and not and I and I'm not saying so visually, because here's the thing. If you're talking about race and it, if we're in a real deep discussion and essentially and you also have to mention that Robin DiAngelo is coming at white people like they have KKK cats hats on sitting in this training. OK, this is her, yes. to me. This is her approach. She's looking at you like you have the KKK hat on right there, the whole uniform.
0: Well, she right. starts out the conversation by saying we're all racist, herself included.
1: Right. That- so, so your initial contact. Remember when I just said when you have a class and you teach students, you have to connect with these students. Correct. If, if students don't care what you know until they know that you care. Yeah. So if you're coming to people and you've admitted yourself that you were very you'd had no knowledge that racism was even real.
0: You, well, you I knew it was real. Different. I didn't know the extent of it, right? I yeah. mean, I knew it was bad, but I thought it was getting much better. Let's just say right. that.
1: Right. And, so, and or you just really you not. might not have known how deep the roots were.
0: The, exactly.
1: Okay. Yes. So, if you have a group of people, and, and as women, we already know we're emotional beings, right? Yeah. So, we already know that tears tears happen all the time with women for anything. Okay. Yeah. So, and if you have this group, and yes, you... Yes, Robin, you may only be contracted for 2 hours or 1 hour for 2 days. But in order to get in a woman's psyche is to me my question is is really that the most effective approach and is that the proper strategy? No. And I only say <laughs> <laughs> And I only say that because it's insane. Are we focusing on how black people, how black women feel about your tears or is our focus on changing or making the, making the white, the person who has been, it needs the training, has been assigned to the training. Is that, is, are we trying to teach them something or give them some level of understanding about a very real issue?
0: Right, and that goes back to what Dax and I were talking about because he said the same thing. What is our goal? As right. a DEI consultant, is what our is our goal? Our goal is to bring white and black people closer together. Right. Period. I so agree. when you walk in, when you walk into a... And, and I'm just speaking from white, powerful executives. Okay. That I can just yeah. say. Men and women. If you walked into my... If I hired Robin and she came into my ad agency and opened up <laughs> with... You guys are all white racists. Most of your beliefs are tied to white supremacy, which she uses that exact vernacular, right? White supremacy. And you and I talked about this. And I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, I'll give you that. There are, a lot of our thinking is based in white supremacy, meaning that our origins are such that we have learned this vernacular and we've extended this vernacular and got it. But white supremacy is an immediate conjure for me of dickheads in pointy hats on horseback lynching black people. So if you're going to tell me that my beliefs are based in white supremacy, in front of the team, and then every team member is looking at me like, "What the hell, Joe? Who is this? And why'd you hire her?" Right? It's like, "Well, guys, her goal is to bring us all closer together on racial issues." And like, I don't know if this is working because, first of all, I'm not a white supremacist because that does have a connotation. We have to recognize that. And by the way, one of the slides, and I got this from the Coca-Cola. Okay. Okay. It says what it means to be white, not challenging what it means to be a racist. So to be less white, this is what it says on the slide, to be less white is, colon, to be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less certain, be less defensive, be less ignorant, be more humble, which is kind of the ignorant piece. Listen, believe, break with apathy, Break with white solidarity. Okay, those. If you want to talk about dividing a room, right there, and what she says is racism is a system and not an event, and I agree right. with that. We right, we did not talk about the system.
1: Right, I will say that we did. The system is never is never approached, it's never touched. It's not even acknowledged as a system, and I think that's part of the problem. But go back, Joey, for me. Go back to the what slide are you looking at where she says all these things. The be this, be that, don't be this. You just broke up. Sorry. What did you Go oh, back to what? To that the first slide you said. Where, and what slides are these? Can you refer, what slides are these at your where she said
0: be this, be that, don't be this? That was the Coca-Cola slide. So she actually presented this uh to Coca-Cola and then the slides leaked, right? Because people were just uh-huh. up in arms. They're like, This is amazing. And she's not trying to hide any of this. Right. It's just and what right. John McCorror in his when his criti- critique of this the de- dehumanizing condescension of white fragility that's what his article was called and he eviscerated her mm-hmm. and he's a black man who believes mm-hmm. that this is the wrong approach and there's tons of them. even Imran Zendi actually said that what she was doing was problematic because you can't assert that all white people are racist. He said because it's categorically false. Well, my problem, Period. my problem is with the approach.
1: And so what, 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 what did she say on that slide? Cause I think there was only one well, thing I agreed with what she said,
0: be, be, can you yeah, just be, less yeah, be, be less, less defensive? Yeah. Be less defensive, be, be less, less ignorant, be more humble, be more humble. Yeah. And, and those are the pieces that I'm like, okay, well, okay. Uh, so you can't, you can't say that you can't just come in and say, you know, what does that even mean? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to
1: play the devil's advocate here. And I'm going to say that those statements are the same statements I feel are made to our black boys and our black girls. I think those statements that she's making to them, I guess, white women, I guess. is Is she talking to white women or just white people in general?
0: Well, to be to you said this before, and I probably should reiterate this. She actually believes that white progressives are the worst offender of racism because we think we know racism and we don't. And so she points to that. And that's where she gets into the white piece be less oppressive, be less arrogant. So she's basically saying not only are white people racists and white supremacists, which again is language that she has to alter, in my opinion, she's saying that white people as a people are arrogant, oppressive defensive, ignorant, lacking in empathy, and our white solidarity prevents us from actually using any rational logic to apply to a situation. And, and that is where you're getting pushback from the right. And I think that that's, again, the danger of trying to be divisive or clever or cute with your language. And that And that's another thing, too. I watched early videos of her from 2016. And she seemed much softer in her approach. Her book she wrote in 2018; it was a bestseller. And then after George Floyd, it went crazy, right? It she just it just sold another two million or whatever it was. And so now she has this, and I can tell you, it was an egomaniac. <laughs> she's developing that kind of deity swagger, right? Where she's just like, and she walked into and she walked into the Seattle Library Forum and talked to a bunch of progressives and says, "I know all y'all." I know who my audience is here and then she made a couple jokes and she said, and when she goes, and when you laugh at my jokes, I, j- I become even more, I become even more, you know, um, combative, maybe probably not the right word, but she, she then gets into this. You are all white supremacists mm-hmm. and you're the worst offender because you're progressive and you think you understand racism. And then the people are like, yay, you know, or snapping or whatever cool progressives do. But I was like, okay. I don't understand that approach because she's getting worse. And it's like we're feeding the maw. So
1: she uses the same words, but her mannerisms are softer?
0: In the 2016 video, much softer. Mm. And the idea was the same. It's like, hey, there's systemic racism in our culture. We need to teach this to people in power. And in this case, DEI Consulting is, is talking to our upper quintile, right? If we're talking to the senior level executives at big corporations, these are the people that have power. These are the people that can actually infiltrate change. They can do things that are necessary based on their, their, their privilege, right? They're in high, high places. They make tons of money. They have some time to actually reflect on these things, but going in there and telling them the white supremacists is not a good idea. And then this is where we can get into a really controversial dude. Okay. Ben Shapiro, (laughs) which I introduced you to at some level. I mean, I know you knew who he was. I knew who he was. Based on like certain memes, you'd see that you know Ben Shapiro owns a lib or a lib owned Ben Shapiro. That was kind of my understanding of him. He's and why I think culture needs to understand who this young man is is that Ben Shapiro is a he owns the Daily Wire, co-founded it, and it's a very popular conservative news channel. He by training he is a lawyer, Harvard educated lawyer who studied critical race theory in in law school, was a former prosecutor in Los Angeles before he started in his career as a pundit. He's very articulate. He's very knowledgeable. And when he came out and talked about critical race theory and did a whole thing on Robin DiAngelo's book, he came out and, and took apart seven pieces of what she said, including the white tears, including that were arrogant, including that you know, we we actually are white supremacists. And he sent that out. And here's where people I don't think understand the gravity of Ben Shapiro's reach. He has 10 million subscribers between his YouTube channel and his daily wire channel. Mm-hmm. So he has bigger reach than Tucker and Hannity and all those knuckleheads on the right. And, and because he's, and I think he has, I think he has two personas, but the one thing that I can say is that because my friends will, I have a lot of friends on my on my conservative side that will go to Ben for information, and because Ben is an educated lawyer who studied critical race theory and is applying an example like Robin DiAngelo, this is not helping the cause, because he eviscerated this book, obviously with a much more you know venomous language and approach than you and I are. But we can agree, and academics like John McQuarter at Columbia and Im- Imbram Zendi and all these other people that are pointing out, Hey, this isn't a good approach. Like we need well, to, we need to, we need to have, dial this back a bit. I think I have two. I think that, I think so.
1: Okay. So I did see the episode and I think, I think I have two points. I think I have two points.
0: And Cause you watched that. I sent it to you. I
1: did. Right. Yeah. I so I think the first point to be made is that I think, when I watched that, I think that particular episode had fifty-seven thousand views at that time, and that wasn't too long ago. I think that is to that is a lot to be said that that episode had fifty-seven thousand views, and it might have been fifty-seven million. Like it, it was a lot. Yeah,
0: I think it's a lot more than that. But that's okay. It actually,
1: excuse me if I'm wrong. It was a no, lot. It's all right. It's a
0: lot. Well, most of his videos are in the millions. Okay, so so I could be
1: wrong. I could, it could be way more. Sorry. But I think that is the most powerful thing that you need to know is that that many people watched his, and yes, Yes. he tore tore the book apart. A lot of, a lot of things he said I did not agree with. A lot of, right, me too. A lot of his, I think a lot of his rebuttals were false. I think he served his purposes of, whatever he wanted he did not want you to know but that's the first point so i just think his reach and i think the amount of people that watch that critical race theory video the actual picking apart of the book of white fragility which literally to me um outlined my whole life experience as a black person i think is highly indicative of where we are as a nation i agree and, and I think the second point yes. I want to make is at the end of that video, he says, uh, it was an absolute terrible book, terrible book, it was an absolute terrible book. Don't go buy it. You don't have to, you don't have to buy it. I've already bought it for you. I've already read it for you. Go buy my book instead. <laughs> and then, and what I got yeah. from that and what I know about humanity, what I know about humans, and you can, you can come for me, Joey. Is that anytime you tell someone not to do something, it is the right. very thing that they will go and do. Yep. And so I felt redeemed. I did. And I don't know how loyal his viewers are, like if they do what he said. But I know the critical thinkers, the critical thinkers, when they're told no, yeah. they go do it. That's the first yep. thing they do. If someone tells you, you can't do that, don't do that. It's like, well, why not? Especially if it's to read a book. So that kind of redeemed my feelings. My feelings. And these were only my personal feelings. Yeah. Because I do feel like if even half of those people went and read her book, regardless of her approach, regardless of her presentation, her words were very truthful in terms of how... That's her specific audience receives information. And I do think she spelled it out, whether you agree with her or not. She touched nerves. She touched nerves because every time she said you were going to get angry, you got angry. And I noticed that when we discussed her book, every time she would say you might you will probably get angry or mad or start yelling. Joey, you would get angry and get mad and start yelling. And I was like... Well, because that's...
0: She's right. (laughs) But you... but you, And here's the point. There are... I've admitted that I'm a racist. I gave you an example of my own racism, right? I, I, I have racial beliefs. I shared this story with Dax, and I'll share it with you again. I was at a conference with my buddy, Donovan. Beautiful, handsome black man, always dressed to the nines. One of the most respected guys in the industry. And we were a couple drinks in possibly and a guy rolled up in a Range Rover and he got out and he's this tall, handsome black guy. And he goes, Joey, is that a baller? Or is that a tech CEO? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, all right. Yeah, no. He goes, that's what I'm talking about, man. That's what we're up against. And I was like, wow. And then we tried to get a cab somewhere. We were up in like the Upper East Side in Manhattan and he goes, you got to get the cab, dude. And I was like, why? He goes, they won't pull over for me. Yeah. And, you know, this is in the early aughts. So, I mean, those kind of things where I'm like, okay, I didn't, I, that's where my racism every, this happens that,
1: that example about you getting the cab, this happens with Uber all the time. Yes. If, if, if black women, black, if a black, I have been, I have been, I have been deleted. If we're, if I'm at work, I'm at work and we all get out of a conference, everybody calls the same Uber. Right, and I just use Uber Car Share. Right, share. right. It could have been yeah. any other company. Um, and if there's a white counterpart that is in the same place, I will see that driver accept me and then reject me, and then that same driver has just accepted her ride. And there is only, to me, there's only one explanation for it.
0: Well, of course, and, and- I guess that's yeah. the that's the grand narrative here is that. We recognize this is happening. I recognize that I'm racist with those types of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so if for me, if I get to that conclusion on my own, it's going to benefit the culture that I'm around and or the people that I work with and or my family because those are things that I came to on my own. And that's where the power of education comes in. If we're teaching the horrors of history, and let's just say it's juniors in high school is where we start with that mm-hmm. or whatever. Here's what happened with our our culture. Here's where racism played, you know, a huge role in developing what we are today. Here's where Jim Crow came in. Here's where here's where systemic racism still exists, right? That's where education is powerful. What I'm having a problem with the Robbins approach is when you tell people they're that they're are white supremacists that they all are, and this is across the board. All white people. All progressives, you're the worst, by the way, you're the worst because you actually think you're woke, which you're not. And if I tell you that you're racist, you get mad at me. That means you're that you proved you're racist. It's kind of like saying, hey, have you stopped beating your wife yet? There's no good answer to that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so you can't. And, and if you frame these discussions around white people being racist and. If they feel like if they feel defensive because you call them racist, then the racist, there's no winning for them. And if she, and this is what John McCorter gets really into with his article is that it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And so people are not pushing back on this. HR departments are starting to think, you know what? This isn't working. And then there's tons of data, and I haven't reviewed all of it. But the efficacy of these programs isn't working when you go out and tell executives that they're racists. And by the way, when Ben Shapiro gets a hold of it with his audience who adores him, and as I mentioned earlier, they adore him because he's highly educated and intelligent and prolific with his language, and and with a culture that actually rewards conflict, he's wonderful at that. He creates conflict, and right.
1: so And I think, but I think to your point, Joey, and this brings me to my next my next point about Robin D'Angelo's book. I think the the point then becomes was the intent, which was the argument, which was the point we also mentioned with Dax. I think the point comes where. Now the white COs are saying this is not efficient. Like this is not working. The point then remains, we go full circle. Was your intent ever really for it to work? Did you ever really want to change the demographics of your organization?
0: I mean, we I can speak for my friends in the industry only. And that's this is an industry that benefits from diversity. <laughs> so the, I can't speak if I was running a manufacturing plant, mm-hmm. right? I can't speak if I was running... Any other corporation, as an example, I don't know how they run, but in the ad business, it's everyone in the space that I work with was constantly trying to hire diverse people.
1: But then, and, so, so to your point, then why would you hire the most? Why would you hire a white female?
0: I, I mean, if I did my homework on, her, I wouldn't have hired it. Right. Let's just put it but that that's way. That's
1: what I'm saying. But even even if my whole if my whole premise is to increase diversity and inclusion. Why would I hire a white contractor to push my cause? Well, yeah, my, and that's a good point. My first dollar, why would my first dollar being spent on the initiative go to a diverse firm or someone to DAX?
0: Not to DAX's firm,
1: right? Here we no. go. I mean, so I guess that and so and to me full circle here we go. That is where the questioning of the intent really is because is your intent really point. to is your intent really to expand diversity and equity and inclusion or is it to check the box and say that you hired this uh, right well renowned DEI consultant she her whole staff that you know her whole staff is diverse. But who is, the, who is the CEO, who is the head of the staff, who is the face, who is the voice? It's a white female as opposed to, and, and we can use DAX's organization. I don't know what his company's name is, but I'm saying as opposed to another organization doing equal work, maybe not as qualified with education badges of honor and merits and certificates, maybe, maybe doesn't have all the, all the bells and whistles. Maybe that's not there. But maybe your people might actually open their minds and listen and think and maybe it will open your workforce or maybe it will open you to a different workforce or open your 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 um, employees or your yeah. leadership's mind or your board's mind to even consider a diverse work.
0: Yeah. Well I mean none of this I haven't read that it's mandated. I've some companies have mandated DEI training, some have just implemented it. For those reasons. And then another big discussion, by the way, on the right, specific to equity, is what does equity mean?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, this is a big one.
0: So if you mean equality of opportunity, like everyone should have the opportunity to be in the interview and get a job offer, that's, I think, one thing that most people agree on. I haven't seen anybody disagree with that at all. The question then is opportunity of outcome. And I've thrown this out because there was a famous memo from a guy named James DeMore at Google when they were talking about the lack of diversity with programmers at Google. And so he wrote a memo that framed a lot of discussions around the evolutionary biology, some of which was poo-pooed. But the idea there was he said, if we have a thousand, I'm paraphrasing and I'm putting my own stuff in here now, but if there's a thousand developers at Google, DEI training, Specific to Robin's, you know, literature is that we need to have 50% of our culture, of our company, diverse. So let's just keep black and white again here. It's impossible to measure opportunity of outcome when it comes to equality, specific to programming, and co- in our culture is what, 12% black and who knows what the pool of candidates are for black coders or programmers. And so how do you then fulfill that? And that's another big pushback on the right specific to DEI training in general is that we're now recalibrating or rearticulating affirmative action, which is illegal here in California. How does that look? And, and what does that training look like? And, and how does all of that play out? And that's probably a little too deep to get into here, but that there are so many Valid arguments on the right, pushing back on people like Robin DiAngelo. And and that's why I think she's actually doing more harm than good, specific to her attitude, the way she comes across. Like, she's smirking when she's telling people that they're, they're racist. She's using examples of white tears. She's using examples of of categorizing white people as arrogant and abrasive and not humble. And, you know, you that is the worst thing you can do. Specific to powerful people. And if you want to see like a a case in motion right now against white powerful people, it's Texas. Right? Keep pushing. You got fucking Ted Cruz, the worst human being on planet Earth, right? Just like CRT and dirt dirt dirt. You know, he doesn't even know what he's talking. And he's a Harvard educated lawyer himself. If you push powerful people in the wrong direction, they will push back harder. And that's what's happening in Texas. That's what's happening in Texas right now. And with the GOP in general, the fact that there's 21 states filing legislation to ban CRT is a pushback because of people like Robin DiAngelo. It's because of intersectionality training that has gone way too far in the accusational. And I interviewed a, a professor from Notre Dame about this. And he said something unbelievably astute. He said, if you start out your education With accusatory notions as opposed to explanatory notions, it will be problematic every time. And then he said, and then he followed it up with this, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, if we teach the horrors of American history the proper way, it will help all of us understand racism. And he's right. That's, that's where we're going sideways. It's not about going in and telling white executives that they are racist. It's about educating them. And to your point, getting to know them first. If I was a DEI consultant, I would go in as a, as a, let's say I had 10 executives. I would go in and talk with all 10. And then I would sit down with each one of them individually Mm -hmm. and say, so what's your background? Where'd you come from? Mm -hmm. Right. And they'd say, oh, I grew up in Minnesota. I'm like, oh, me too. So you're a good Midwestern boy, and I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up here. I grew up here. Great. And then, and then explain them. How much homework have you done on racism, as an example? I haven't done a lot. I'm like I didn't either, by the way. (laughs) Just to be clear, I didn't really study any of this until five years ago. And then once I got into it, I was like, oh wow, this is real, and this is systemic, and this is problematic, and we need to figure this out as a culture. And then all those people after my individual one-on-ones, then I would bring them back together and say, hey, here's some of the literature that really makes sense, yeah. right? But that's an approach that's not happening. And and, and I don't, I'm sure there's tons of consultancies, by the way, to be clear, that approach this like Dax's company. Mm-hmm. But Robin DiAngelo is in the zeitgeist. She's the number one selling book in this space. She's the number one face to this movement. But Joe, and it's all wrong. And, but who made her that? White people. HR departments. I don't know. And that's another question. My brother, as you know, very vocal and outspoken. He said, who are the idiots that are hiring this woman? And I had to agree with him. Like, who who is hiring this woman? After you see this fallout, why do you want someone to come in and poke the tiger? Like, let's just let's pet the tiger <laughs> and let's say, hi, are you, Mr. Tiger? How are you? Did you know you're racist? And you're like, yes, I do. But but it's it doesn't work to be a dick. It just doesn't. And and that's, and and that's and I think and I think
1: the point I want to raise to that is that you wouldn't accept it from the black
0: community. So that's a really you, good point. Well, I think you, a black you, person will be smart enough not to go in and call a bunch of white people racist.
1: But some do, some do because some some are right here, some are done. All right, and, and I think, no
0: no, it's a good point.
1: And, and I'm not saying that it's. I'm saying you're right. Most I, and I don't like to ch- talk in these general terms. No, I don't most, either. It's really but dangerous. Most of us have been conditioned to where we know how to we know how to hold ourselves. Like we know you're how right. to approach the topic when it's brought to us. But also, I think you're I feel like and I, and I'm not criticizing her but I kind of am. You are approaching the very thing that you would not accept from the black community. Right. You don't accept that type of behavior. We can't even talk. I can't even raise my voice to the cops.
0: No, you can't. You told me that, that exact circumstance just happened to you.
1: I can't even raise my voice to the cops or else I am immediately defined as the angry woman who was inappropriate.
0: Right. Right. Well, and that, that I guess is the piece of it. She's doing what, yes, to your point, she's doing exactly what you can't do. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's weird and, here, I mean. and,
1: and here's and I think the bigger point is is what the um, professor from Notre Dame said it shouldn't be done on either on either party. no it shouldn't it sh- why can't we just talk to each other in a respectful tone? why and I think we're seeing more and more of this, right I think you know through Dave Chappelle's last special with the comedy and yeah, I know transgender is not our topic, but you know but I think his his plight has always been his fight with white people about his words and I think that he opens these conversations like I feel like com- comedy is one of my kind of go-tos just to vent without venting because it's right. so nice when someone else can you can well, yeah. someone else's voice to say everything you feel right yeah and so but it but comedy also opens conversations it opens conversations and then I think I feel like we are in a place, we are in a time where we're going to have to sit down and have these conversations if we want to get to the next step. Because I think my third point, I think I said proximity is one thing. Right. I think if we're talking about letters to my white male friends and what can white men do or what how can, how can we approach this? I think proximity is one. I think- Lack uh, of
0: judgment was the second one. Yeah, right. not
1: judging. I think, you know- just not judging based on, and when I say don't judge, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, don't look at someone's resume and see a historically Black university, you know, and then automatically count them out. Right. You know, and, and right. I mean, judgment coming from a, a merit-based place. Right. 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 I'm not saying look for the lowest person on the totem pole and try to bring them up by their bootstraps. I'm just right. saying like, Know your vision, and and I really feel this way. Know the vision of your company. Know what you're looking for, and 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 know. I think I think the the term I want to use is just be more, just attend to more social cues.
0: Well, let me let me. You touched on something really important that whether you're wanting to talk about it or not. I Dave Chappelle's show has caused a lot of hoopla in the press lately, and I see it all over my feeds and everyone's arguing about the trans community. I think, and I don't know this, I should ask this as opposed to offering it up as a statement. Does Dave Chappelle have a ax to grind, the fact that the black culture has been oppressed and ignored for 500 years, and the trans culture is getting this much attention, and let's just say, Empathetic no. and c- compassion. and again, I they do deserve no. to can, be compassion. But is, is, I, can is answer, there...
1: I can answer that easy? No, because Dave Chappelle. So first of all, black people will never not like Dave Chappelle.
0: Uh, well, how, yeah, I love him, um,
1: and the reason being is that because ever since the beginning of Dave Chappelle, he has always everything he's ever done has been to address racism. With right the white man every yes. every every set he's ever done everything I've ever read about him it has always had an undertone now how he did it or, or the, the the banner in which he did it or the platform he used or what um, whether it was a skit or a show or or walking away from 50 million dollars like you said right yep all of his action has said I am pro black and I think that brings us to another problem that maybe some some white people do not understand is that just because I'm pro black does not mean I'm anti white. Correct. Pro black just means I choose to want to see the black race progress. So I am Progressing the Black race with my actions, with my words, with my deeds, with any, with my community work, with my volunteerism, with te- where I send my child to school, with what I teach my kid. And if you believe in that, anybody can be pro Black. I mean, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, I got into a lot of, um, I wouldn't call them altercations, not like your altercations, but I did. I approached some issues with race with with white women who did not it was one specific white woman. I loved her content. She did a lot of mom content and I loved it. And she really helped me in the beginning, but I did notice as I kept, you know, her feed kept coming in. I noticed, I was like, she has no diversity in anything she does. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, George Floyd happened. Right. And the issue came up. And so, and I had mentioned it a couple of times, but she never said anything back. And she had a woman, she had another, what do they call bloggers? She had another blogger yeah. come in, very soft-spoken, very meek, mild manner, very nice lady. And um, they had a conversation. They had a conversation. And she was much like you, except for probably a little, a lot less educated. Um, but they had a conversation. And in the end, I ended up thinking, and and this could be an error on my part, but I, I thanked her publicly. I thanked her the writer of the blog, publicly on in the comments. Mm-hmm. But I privately thank the Black woman for taking on the task because I think what Robin D'Angelo does mention in, ter- in that white t- tears part is that as Black women, we have so much on our backs already. Like when our sons walk out the door, we literally go into a state of fear that, right. that then becomes a part of us. And to take on the the task of having to educate every single or not even educate but having to engage wholeheartedly in every single in, interracial problem that comes across our plate it can be so much and like you mentioned in the beginning of this because it's all the same yeah to you to the white woman to you it's all new and different and you didn't know and oh my god but for me I've had the same conversation yep.
0: 5,000 times. Well, and I think that's a, a good way to wrap this up friend. I think that conversations like this help. Yeah, they do. And, and I, again, I go back to, I think Robin DiAngelo has a good heart. I don't think she's meaning to do this. I think she just got caught up in her, her success. Right. I think, cause I've been caught up in my success, as you know, and it, I don't know. I don't, I really, honestly. I'm just saying that I don't think it's working. Her specific application to telling people that they're racist isn't the best approach. That's just my, it's just my purview. It doesn't mean I'm right. It's just where, it's just how I feel. And And I'm
1: going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to counter you. And I'm going to say that I'm not sure the intent was for it to work. I'm not sure. You're right. I'm not, I'm not positive that the people. The HR organizations or divisions contracting her ever really wanted it to work?
0: Well, that's a different question because I one thing that Dax said to me when I was saying, I think the left, like Robin D'Angelo, are pushing this too far. Dax used a wonderful example that I shared with a couple other folks on podcast. And he said, Malcolm X pushed things very far on purpose. Mm-hmm because he knew it would help MLK. And he said, the same thing is happening with your brethren on the left, Joey, is that they're pushing things so far to the left, Robin D'Angelo being a wonderful example here, that even when when we come to an agreement as a culture, people will say, hey, we don't wanna go as far as Robin was, but she has a lot of valid points, so let's come back a little. And that center is still further left than it was previously, which make, produces, we're making progress in this case. And it so could, I, was, I will, I will say that be, Let's,
1: that could be her model. That,
0: that maybe that's what it is, and, and that's a stealth model, and it's awesome if that's the case. Because she and like really, you said, is I feel it.
1: like it's the same. Like you said, it it triggers talks. Either it do, it does you're
2: literally you're right. going to yeah and too? I think,
1: and she mentions anger a lot. She mentions anger as a product of white fragility a lot, and I yeah. think anger sparks conversations because if we're talking about what she's founded that book in in white solidarity if somebody makes you angry you go tell your other white friend and then they get angry and then y'all talk about it and then eventually you get around a diverse group and then it becomes a
0: conversation because you know people- what I'll, yeah, I'll give you that that's a really good point and mm-hmm. and you know I learned something today <laughs> so you thank you do thank you yeah i and i I want to like her I really do, and maybe it is my own shit. Maybe it's my own guilt. Um, actually, I don't have. I don't. Guilt. I don't think it is. I don't have guilt. I, I don't. I, that's another thing I talked about when she said, do you say do people have shame. I'm like, I don't have any shame. I didn't do any of that shit. We know.
1: Like, I think. I, we know. <laughs> we know, Jojo. We know.
0: <laughs> All right, that's a good point. Well, we thank know. you. Thank you so much, Case. I, I
1: don't th- I, th- absolutely, but I don't think I do need to say this. I don't think. I don't think it's you. I think, I think she's turned a lot of people off. So I don't yeah. want you to take that because one, once you recognize that you have these racist tendencies or you've been involved in, in these ra- indirectly in racism, yeah. like racist organizations, I think the weight of that is enough to make you, and this was my third point. Oh, I forgot to tell you okay. my third point. Let me tell you my third point. This is, I think that weight is enough to make you, I think the third point I want to make is we have to take a stand. We have to commit to an action. And when I say that, we can't be lukewarm. We can't sit on the fence. We can't just sit on the fence anymore and watch everything go down. I think we have to say, I'm either going to help this movement, I'm going to help, or not even movement, I'm going to help to progress the Black race because there are laws and, and there are institutions and there are social philosophies that plague you know, learning institutions that are not allowing. It's just like with media, right? When you don't see yourself in it, you don't think you exist. And if I'm a black mm-hmm. girl and I never saw a black Barbie and I never saw myself on TV, then I don't think that I can ever be a movie star. Yeah. And so yeah. I think you have to commit to which side of this you're going to be on.
0: Well, and that goes back to what I was saying before. I I, I shared that with Dax too, because he asked me, what are you doing to help? Mm-hmm. And I said, dude, I'm, I'm reading. I'm educating myself. And then I'm doing the reading. <laughs> oh, I'm trying. Right. Like, it's like, I, yeah. And I think that's where, again, but that's
1: not Joey. That's not, you said on your interview with Dax that, you know, right now for the last few years, you've been a stay at home dad, but you are planning to go back in the corporate world in a different yeah. form. And I think yeah. that's why you're doing this is because no. you, one, you definitely have access. You have access. You're a white male. And yep. two, you're an ad exec. I mean, you, you're a communicator. So yep. if yep. there's anybody that can bring the message up, it's you.
0: Well, thanks. And I'm going to try and I'm going to keep you, I'm going to keep you on my, uh, my touchstone. So every time I do something, I'm like, Case, how am I doing? <laughs> Tell me where I'm wrong. And I'll be there for you. I know you will, honey. So thanks again. I appreciate your time. And I love you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at Christmas when we come back. Yay! Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.